Well, when the Civil War began in 1861, few on either side knew what lay ahead. Early fighting between the opposing armies yielded casualties, but nothing that would overwhelm the medical facilities of either side. Those early engagements, however, soon gave way to much larger battles and longer periods of time spent in camp and on the march, quickly resulting in increased incidents of sickness. Soon, staggering numbers of sick and wounded soldiers placed unprecedented demands on the practice of medicine on both sides. Today's lecture will describe the state of medical science in the 1860s and its application in Virginia during the war, mostly on the Confederate side, and reveal the complicated issue of care on the battlefield, the transportation of patients to fixed general hospitals, and the role of sanitation. Our speaker, Dr. Adrian Wheat, spent a total of 25 years in the U.S. Army as a general surgeon, including a tour in Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. This experience gave him some insight into the actual operation of a field hospital. He is the co-founder of the Society of Civil War Surgeons and has served as its vice president for many years. Dr. Weed has been participating in reenactments and living history programs since 1969 and has portrayed a surgeon since the early 1970s. He works closely with the National Park Service and other historic sites and has helped set up several medical exhibits, especially the Chimborazo exhibit here in Richmond. Most recently, he advised the VHS on surgical topics for our exhibition, An American Turning Point, The Civil War in Virginia. And in fact, if you've been to that exhibit, you've seen him in that exhibit. He stars as the doctor in that silhouetted amputation interactive that is shown against the side of a tent. So this won't be the first time you've seen him. Um, and in any case, I'd like you to please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Dr. Adrian Wheat, who will speak to us about Civil War medicine. Thank you. This uh, slide, in addition to being one of my favorite slides, my friend and I at Fredericksburg, is meant to remind me to remind you that this Saturday we're going to be over at the Chimborazo Museum <coughs> and we're going to be talking about the similarities between 19th century medicine, particularly military medicine, and the 20th century military medicine, or I guess more appropriately, the 21st century. The paradox just was for fun. <laughs> in the mid-19th century, medicine was in a state of flux, no pun intended. <laughs> but allopathy or traditional medicine had grown to be distrusted, was proven to be not only useless but downright harmful in many cases, and people were going to other forms of medicine, such as homeopathy, where the doses were much smaller, and they lived on the principle of like cures like, where you took a plant that was similar to the disease and used it to make the medicine for the disease. And of course, botanic medicine, where you got away from all the drastic mercury, mercury vapors and mercury salts and and various other medications that could turn your intestines inside out and treated people with simple botanical substitutes. 
I always like to point out that the botanical substitutes used in the mid-19th century and subsequently by the Confederate Army can be readily gathered today, or purchased, I might say, at Elwood Thompson. Uh, they are available there in their raw form, in ground-up roots and barks and leaves and berries, and therefore the same exact indication as they were used in the 19th century. Now, we're going to be talking about several trends in medicine. Some happened before the war, but were very crucial to the practice during the war. Some happened before the war, but were used much more extensively and therefore became much more a part of the medical regimen during the war. Some were actually started or at least used for the first time in a massive way uh, during the war. So we're going to talk about a few of each. The practice of medicine in the 19th century consisted of trying to restore the patient to the condition he presumably was in prior to his illness. That's why you see so many medications that are called restoratives. And it sounds like a good idea, and it was a good thought. Unfortunately, they interpreted fever and flushing and rosy cheeks and rapid heartbeat as signs of overstimulation. So many of the restoratives were depleting therapies. Bleeding was a colonial therapy that had grown into much disfavor by the time of the Civil War. But things like diuretics, things that made your kidneys act, uh, purgatives or drastics as they were called, which made your bowels evacuate their contents, these were all considered depleting therapies and were used to a great extent. Most of the patients, when we're talking about young soldiers who were out in the field, exposed to the elements with an inadequate diet, and usually suffering from <coughs> excuse me, some form of dysentery or diarrhea, had already had diarrhea for six weeks or even three months sometimes, and certainly didn't need further depleting. <coughs> Medicine was aimed primarily at treating symptoms of disease. There were successful treatments for fever, as I say, you could easily affect the way the kidneys act or the way the stomach acts. Uh, Ipecac was used to make people induce vomiting. Uh, opiates were available, as we'll discuss later, under pain management. And they are quite effective at slowing the bowel. They paralyze the peristaltic action of the bowel. Uh, one of the derivatives of opium that's still used today for diarrhea is, is um, paragoric. However, opiates were used alternatively or in an alternating fashion with harsh laxatives. But as we'll discuss, the soldiers or the doctors who were treating soldiers in camp saw more patients at one time than they had ever seen while practicing civilian medicine. And the real key is that they actually saw the same patients over and over again. So they had a chance to actually observe the effects of their treatment. And there's indications, it's hard to prove for sure, but there seem to be anecdotal references to the fact that these alternating therapies gradually shifted to where they favored the more correct of the two because it seemed to be what worked. And in that subtle but very significant way, the treatment of many of these diseases improved during the war, but with no 
advance in the theoretic knowledge, especially the fact that germs seem to cause disease. Now, there was one medication that actually treated a specific disease, and that was quinine. You know, the Peruvian bark had been used for centuries to treat the intermittent fever uh, with great effectiveness, but it was undependable. It depended on which tree you took the bark from and how long you boiled it and how concentrated the solution was. But in the decade preceding the war, quinine sulfate was developed, which gave you a predictable and dependable safe dosage of quinine, and this was used to both prevent and treat malaria and saved many thousands of lives. The subject of pain control is one that most people find is one of the big myths of the Civil War, was that they had no pain control, especially no anesthesia. If you get your Civil War history from Hollywood, that would be the impression you would have. And I'm here to tell you, anything you learn from Hollywood is subject to skepticism. The opium had been abundantly available for many, many centuries. Uh, laudanum, of course, was a tincture of opium, which does exactly what we tell people not to do now. They, it was an alcohol tincture, which was like taking your opium and then drinking wine. The paragoric and other derivatives of opium were available and used periodically. But the main thing was morphine sulfate. Like quinine sulfate, the alkaloid morphine sulfate had been isolated and combined so that it was an easily ingestible and digestible pill, and it was readily available. The Confederate surgeons who wrote their memoirs following the war made the statement that we were never short of those things which we found most useful, and that included quinine, morphine, and chloroform. So not only was it known and available, but it was rarely totally out as far as the supply lines go. Chloroform, of course, is an anesthetic <coughs> of sorts. The vapors of the chloroform, like the vapors of another solvent called ether, both would render the patient insensible to pain. They did not put you completely asleep like a modern anesthetic. We have letters from soldiers who wrote home and said very clearly, I remember my surgery, but I felt no pain. You were in a twilight type sleep, much like the sedation you're given for procedures today, such as colonoscopy. Ether was a recreational drug prior to the mid 19th century. People would have ether frolics. And at these ether frolics, they would cavort. <laughs> now, if anybody can tell me precisely what cavorting is, <laughs> but it must have been fun because they frequently fell and injured themselves <laughs> and still have enough presence of mind to notice that they, they felt no pain. Now, who do you think initially put ether to use? The dentist. Can you imagine a dentist trying to get people into his office without Novocaine? But they picked up on ether. But much like marijuana today, its history as a recreational drug made the medical profession skeptical of its legitimate medical use. 
So they added red dye and called it Lethion. Now, I'll be darned if I'd let anybody give me Lethion, but apparently it worked. At this point in time, dental infections were the number five cause of death in the United States. And by using ether in its disguise, which was eventually dropped, by the way, as, as always the word gets out eventually, uh, drastically reduced the death rate from dental problems. And before I forget it, like I did last night when I practiced this, <laughs> uh, while we're on the subject of dental problems, let me just say that incorporating dentistry into the Army was something the Confederate Army was the first to ever do. The dental profession was a fledgling uh, profession. There were many practicing dentists, and I think the American Dental Society predated the war. But the efforts to incorporate dentistry into the U.S. Army prior to the war, even though Jefferson Davis, who at that time was Secretary of War, was all in favor of it, uh, failed to pass Congress. I guess it was an additional expense they didn't think we could afford. And the Federal Army, up to and including the war, were forced to seek dental assistance outside the Army at a private dentist at their own expense. Now, of course, this involved anything more fancy than simply extracting the tooth. If you had a tooth that needed extracting, you can get your tent made or possibly someone in your company that had had some experience pulling teeth to do it for you. The Confederates, however, recognized dentistry as an essential profession and incorporated dentists into the Army by making them the equivalent of hospital stewards or NCOs. But they weren't assigned to the field armies. They were assigned only to the general hospitals like the ones here in Richmond. And it was a dentist a Confederate dentist during the war who first came up with the idea of wiring the jaws together for fractured mandible. His name was Baxter Bean, and he did his initial work in Atlanta and was later brought here to Richmond and worked at Chimborazo Hospital. So now I won't have to worry about forgetting the dentist. <laughs> and you don't have to pull it out of me. <laughs> but back to the chloroform, Chloroform was discovered after the discovery of ether. Both were available as solvents, but the anesthetic properties were found by sniffing anything and everything, which was a dangerous profession. <laughs> but they did notice that chloroform had similar properties to ether as far as rendering you insensible to pain, but it was much safer. It didn't explode when the candle was held close, <laughs> which was much safer for the surgeon. It also was denser and evaporated less and transported more easily. The big key though, since all things weren't immediately embraced, was that the British Army during the Crimean War in Europe used chloroform tens of thousands of times and found it to be safe, effective, and a big hit with the patients. So by the time of our Civil War, Chloroform and ether were both generally used. Chloroform was the anesthetic of choice by the field surgeons. And as I say, we actually have references to the fact that the patients were indeed rendered insensible to pain. 
<laughs> so if we have morphine and we have chloroform, why do we need whiskey? <laughs> whiskey was used in prodigious amounts, but it was felt to be a stimulant. Of course, today we know it's not a stimulant. It uh, depresses the central nervous system. But what's even worse, it dilates the blood vessels, which complicates hemorrhage or bleeding. But unfortunately, it was a stimulant to, the, to our Civil War ancestors. And the first thing that was done to a wounded man after he was given a big cup of water, since he was always thirsty, was to give him a big dose of stimulant. Then he was dosed with morphine. Then he was dosed with a little bit of chloroform for its pain-killing properties. And then he was sent back to a larger treatment facility. The other thing, we were discussing botanical medicine. The Confederates, although they initially started with a pharmacopoeia very similar to the Union Army, uh, most of their medicine was blocked from importation through the blockade. This is considered a very dastardly uh, deed by the Federal Navy, but to tell you the truth, it was probably a great favor to a good many Confederate soldiers. And the Confederates were forced to seek out botanical remedies, and much like the homeopathic idea of like cures like, Dr. Porche, when he wrote his book, it was under the premise that plants from the region where you are when you get sick would be more likely to cure your illness. So this is a copy of his book called Flora and Fauna of Southern Fields and Forest. It went out to all the surgeons, and they were actually encouraged to go out and pick dandelions and, and rhubarb and, and various barks and plants and things that could either be ground up and made into pulvules or could be dissolved in tinctures or solutions. Sometimes these plants can be tricky. If you've ever had mushrooms and your cook used the wrong kind of mushrooms, you'll know what I mean. So it was recommended that before the soldiers went out and collected the plants, the surgeon accompany them. And botanical medicine made up a large part of all medical school curriculum. This is a small portion of a Confederate medical chest. It was a militia unit in Petersburg that later became a company in the 1st Virginia Infantry. As most medical chests from the time, it was originally put up by a Union port city, and it was because chests like this had their use primarily on ships before the war. But you can clearly see on the right-hand side that flax and flaxseed were a big portion as they are today. And there's blue pills in the middle and powdered alum, which makes you very hard to talk. <laughs> if you've ever eaten a green persimmon, you're familiar with it. This is our surgeon. He's unknown, so he's our generic surgeon. <clears throat> he's only half a paradox. <laughs> but there are two things I'd like to mention. One, you can clearly see the wreath on his hat that says MS. This stood for medical staff. And the fact that he was a staff officer meant that his job was to advise the colonel of the regiment on health matters and sanitation matters. Also, he has black facings, the collar and cuff facings, 
were black because the color for the medical department in the Confederate Army was black. The Federals had no such branch color for their medical department, simply staff shoulder straps. His advice to the colonel about sanitary measures was usually good. The colonels had a mixed reaction to it, usually early in the war to ignore it. The camps that were kept clean and neat and the latrines were put downstream instead of upstream, which actually made the water taste better anyway. Uh, the, the men that were policed up and not allowed to throw their scraps and bones out for the flies and dogs to accumulate. Uh, the dead cats were picked up, whatever. Those regiments had a much lower sick call than the units that weren't treated in that fashion. And that carries over into modern warfare. I know when we went to Saudi Arabia, the men reverted to caveman status when taken away from their spouses. <laughs> People didn't want to stumble around in the dark looking for the latrines, so they just went out behind the tent. And even though we had hand washing stations set up, they failed to use them. And sometimes we had up to 50% of some units that were sick with febrile diarrhea, much like the Civil War. But fortunately, the similarity ends there. We just gave everybody Cipro and fluids, and it seemed to work. But there is a similarity even in that because we were just treating it empirically based on our observation. We didn't have a lab to culture the bacteria and all that. So if the colonels listened to the men or listened to their surgeons, they would have been in much better shape. Lee once famously said, the men are like children, but at least you can tell children what to do. <laughs> and I think that is true throughout the ages. Of course, the soldier's idea of the doctors was quite a bit different. Here you see two examining surgeons portrayed as jackasses. <laughs> I think those are jackasses, or maybe they're Democrats, I don't know. <laughs> maybe both. <laughs> but it looks like the south end of a northbound horse, I tell you. Uh, of course, the examinations uh, coming into the service were, were paltry or scanty. Sometimes I've seen references to a whole company being lined up and said, does anybody have anything wrong with them? And if nobody said yes, then they were all accepted. Uh, I remember my own draft physical when they hollered out my name to see if I was there, and that constituted my hearing test. <laughs> Speaking of Marines, when I decided which branch of the service to join, I always thought the Navy might be fun but they had a bad habit of loaning their doctors to the Marines. <laughs> so I wound up in the Army, which proved to be probably the best. Well, I was going to say there was one quote from an old Confederate soldier. He said, doctors ain't got half cents. They kills more than they cures. And that might well have been true early in the war, but it wasn't really the doctor's fault. It wasn't that they had a lack of training. You had to have a medical degree to be a commissioned officer in the Confederate Army. 
So if you were a surgeon wearing a uniform out with the field army, it meant that you had spent at least six months and sometimes a year or two of apprenticeship uh, in one of the accredited medical schools. I say accredited. Accredited means they got enough money for their lecture tickets to keep their doors open. Uh, as far as I know, there was no testing in some schools to see if you absorbed anything. It was simply a matter of attending it and getting your degree. And the, and the Army did not require that you went to one of the better schools, just any school would do. Civilian medicine, at least, required no degree and no license to practice medicine. So it was quite a jumbled up set of circumstances. This particular field surgeon, Dr. Watson Meredith Gentry, and this beautiful picture is out of the collection of the Museum of the Confederacy, but he's the only photograph I know of showing a Confederate surgeon in the field. You can barely see the shelves with bottles on them in the back of his tent. And he was right there in camp ready to treat any and all comers. His biggest desire throughout the war was to get assigned to a hospital where he would be much less exposed to the inclement weather as well as danger. Now sick call was the ritual that they went through every morning where the sergeant brought the sick and the malingers who weren't really sick, but they all came to see the doctor. And they would be outside the doctor's tent, which is shown with a small flag hanging on it. And they would have some sort of cursory exam, such as examining the tongue. And then they would be given one of half a dozen or so potential remedies, two of which were usually opium or calomel or blue mass, which was one of the drastic laxatives. <clears throat> you can see the last man in line there apparently has an abscessed tooth. And even the surgeons in the field could lance, uh, uh, gum lancets to use for abscesses around the teeth. Plus you could use opium before you extracted the tooth. Back at the hospitals where the dentists were assigned, they were actually filling cavities. They had uh, manual drills where they would excavate the, the carried matter and then they would tap uh, gold or silver foil into the, into the resulting cavity, what they call plugging cavities. They provided tooth cleaning, and as you well know, the teeth were indispensable if you wanted to join the infantry for tearing open the cartridge. Of course, uh, surprise, surprise, you could always be used in the artillery. But uh, Now, sick call is where the doctor would see a large number of patients, and some of these guys in civilian practice might have seen seven or eight people a week. And here he's seeing 50 people a day, and a lot of them are repeat visits. So it gave him a chance to observe and, and improve his treatment. Now when it came to battle, of course the treatment of the casualties began right on the battlefield. It was the assistant surgeon's job to actually go out onto the battlefield with the troops. It was not a safe job. Uh, we. We've compiled a list of at least 250 Confederate surgeons who were killed or died of disease during the war. And about half of those are people that were either killed in action or mortally wounded. So he would pick the safest place he could find but close enough to the front to provide immediate aid. 
I don't think the term first aid was popular then, but immediate aid would do. He would splint fractures, he would stop bleeding, he would give doses of pain medication and a whiff of chloroform, and of course stimulants. I read a story once where it said the doctors at the hospital were quite stimulated. <laughs> In fact, another good stimulant story, if I can interject it, is the old doc down in Georgia who they brought some homemade whiskey to see if it was drinkable. And he said, yep, it looks like pine tops and kerosene and several other things, but I think you could take it, and I want you to take it internally, externally, and eternally. <laughs> but once they were stabilized, they were placed in an ambulance wagon and taken back to the field hospital. Oops. I just threw this in to see who was awake. <laughs> <coughs> you know, at first I thought this would be a light moment, but if you look at the bottom, they're doing something very important, and that's starting a soup bowl. And it turns out, if you think about it, these battlefield hospitals did not exist except during a battle. The regimental surgeons usually camped with their regiment and were with their regiment, and then during a battle they all got together and formed a hospital. But it took several years during the war for them to assign a commissary officer or a quartermaster officer to these ad hoc hospitals. And the first thing they had to do in addition to treating the wounded man was to provide clean clothing for the torn and blood-caked clothing that came in on the man. They had to provide shelter, often in a building, but sometimes in tents. And they had to provide food for up to several hundred patients that might be at their hospital. So finding a big pot and starting a big pot of soup was always one of their primary duties. And they used something very interesting called Jones Portable Soup. I have a feeling this was as bad as it sounds. <laughs> you would take 40 pounds of beef and boil it for days until it was reduced to about a pint of a gelatinous goop. Then you would pour this out on a sheet of tin about a quarter inch thick and let it dry, cut it into cubes, and it was absolutely impervious to damage. <laughs> it was also absolutely devoid of any nutritional value. But it did flavor the water, so apparently Jones Portable Soup was the answer to the nutritional needs of the hospital. This is an actual rendition of a hospital, this one down at Williamsburg. Early on they tried to find commodious buildings such as barns and other outbuildings. Homes were rarely used for the primary hospital but the hospital were, was usually located near homes because they were along transportation routes and they were near a source of water. Water was absolutely essential. When a man's bled, he has an acute thirst, and it was also an important part of wound care. The surgeons said in their memoirs that we practice cleanliness in the social sense. Doctors in Europe had proven that washing your hands had a great deal to do with your patient's progress. 
So doctors were not as unaware of filth and disease being related as we probably have thought at one time in our lives. In fact, as we'll discuss later, they actually had chemicals. <coughs> we might as well discuss it now. They actually had chemicals that would not only make the wounds smell better and were often used as deodorants, but they would make the wounds less likely to go from a localized infection to a systemic infection, which was even then called sepsis and was frequently fatal. So these chemicals began to be called antiseptics. And you might find it startling to be reading about a doctor's wartime correspondence where he mentions antiseptics and find yourself saying, wait a minute, I didn't think he knew about the germ theory. And these were things like iodine and bromide and things that were very similar to mercurochrome in the 19th and 20th century and used to paint the wounds topically to kill the bacteria. Sugar was used, molasses, various uh, uh, bactericidal doses of salt and sugar. But mainly it was uh, things like carbolic acid, which was later used by Halstead when he practiced antiseptic surgery in the late 1800s. So cleanliness was practiced as well as practical. And the instruments were kept as clean as possible because blood and pus are very corroding. You know, all of the bodily fluids are made up of salt. They're roughly the same salinity as seawater. I guess that's how we finally crawled out of the sea. We brought the sea with us. <laughs> but you wanted to keep your instruments clean for that reason. The only real transmission of disease in an operating room would be bloodborne disease, and they weren't aware of that. That comes into play later when we're talking about vaccination. And I better go ahead and talk about that too, so I, <laughs> my mind's getting to be like Swiss cheese, so if I don't. <laughs> One of the few innovative things, not first time innovation, but the use of widespread vaccination for smallpox was a Civil War type occurrence, in the United States at least. Cowpox, which had been shown by Jenner in Britain to prevent smallpox if used to inoculate patients, was not generic or it was not endemic to the United States. So the cowpox wasn't available. Sometimes they would inoculate children on their way over with cowpox, taking matter from each successful take during the months of passage so that there was one fresh sore by the time they got to New York and, and import small amounts of cowpox that way. But most inoculation was by inoculating the actual variola virus. And this was called variolization. And you might think, well, that's pretty silly. You're just going to give them smallpox. But getting a small amount through a skin site was much less likely to give you a systemic disease than catching the virus through the uh, air passages. So the virilization program was quite effective. It did occasionally have untoward results, either active smallpox. Have you ever wondered what the big pox was? <laughs> I mean, you really ought to wonder about these things. 
the big pox was syphilis. And that's why the little pox was smallpox. And that's an interesting subject. <laughs> Boy, the poor patient's going to be at the field hospital a long time. Uh, syphilis presented with a ulcerated lesion in the unmentionable area. Uh, as one soldier wrote home about the mumps, he said, I've had the mumps for a week and it's settled in my secrets. <laughs> but when you came in with a obvious syphilitic sore, it was treated in a number of ways and they all appeared to work. The reason is that the natural history of the disease is that the sore eventually goes away on its own and doesn't recur for several years in the form of secondary syphilis. So everybody thought they were curing syphilis and indeed nobody was curing syphilis. And this is true of many other things today, not to mention warts, which go away 50% of the time on their own. So don't go stomping around the woods finding stump water by moonlight. <laughs> Just be patient. But venereal disease, of course, was a big problem the punishment part of your treatment was all the caustic things they placed in the area of involvement, <laughs> such as mercury. Uh, one of the old sayings was, one night in the arms of Venus and the rest of your life in the arms of mercury. <laughs> also, if you came in with a venereal disease, you were not given a leave to go home in the Confederate Army. That sounds sort of punitive to me. Uh, I'm not even going to mention the penal system. <laughs> anyway, back to the hospital. We've got our patient who's been rescued from the battlefield in a timely fashion. He's been sedated and made comfortable so he can tolerate his ride to the hospital. And at the hospital is where the amputations were performed. Now, another big misconception with Confederate surgeons or any surgeons during the wartime period is that they were knife-happy drunkards that just couldn't wait to operate on people. Nothing could be further from the truth. The surgeons who participated at First Manassas, first bull run to you northerners, were hesitant to operate. They saw the futility of operating out in the field. They wanted to package everybody up and send them to Richmond. And this is roughly the same problem we have today. You've got surgeons that are used to uh, having a lawyer looking over their shoulder and they want to get a good outcome for the wound and make it cosmetically appealing, which can be fatal sometimes in a combat situation. And just as true during the Civil War as now, the proper treatment was to widely debride or, or trim away all the damaged tissue and leave it open and it would be packed with lint and managed in that fashion, which drastically cut down the mortality, but left many disfigured people. And one of the biggest debridements they did was the removal of a limb or amputation. 90% of the wounded that made it to the field hospital were in the limbs. Gutshot men sometimes made it they survived a day or two, but eventually died of peritonitis or a spreading infection. Chest people that had gunshot wounds to the chest, amazingly enough, if they lived long enough to get to the field hospital, they frequently survived their wound. 
Why? Because if you hit anything too important on the chest, you're not going to make it to the field hospital, <laughs> especially with a 58 caliber mini ball. There was a great story from Chickamauga of a man who apparently had dextrocardia. You know, that's not that rare just to have a uh, I I reversal of the organs in the chest. And he was shot over what generally would be the heart and survived, much to everybody's incredulity, amazement. <laughs> so after the war, when their diagnostic criteria, or maybe after x-rays, they found out he had a right-sided heart, <coughs> and he was forever known as the man who had his heart knocked on the right side at Chickamauga. <laughs> But most of the chest wounds today and then can be managed symptomatically with rest and they will eventually heal and, and heal uh, without surgical intervention. But the 90% of the wounds in the limbs were treated either surgically or non-surgically based on their severity. All limbs weren't amputated, but any wound that destroyed a lot of tissue, fractured the bone or involved a joint was usually amputated. The reason was that the infection, which was inevitable, I mean inevitable, remember I took my unsterile finger and examined the wound, um, resulted in infections. Of course, you had a little bit of choice over whether you wanted strep or staph or, or uh, clostridial infection, but they all resulted in infection, and a deep wound with an infection almost invariably eventually spreads and forms a septic condition which is about 95% fatal. If a quick circular amputation was done, and I use the term quick meaning within 48 hours, which was their golden two days. Now, now we feel like we need to get to trauma within a golden hour. But the golden two days was about 48 hours and that's what's called a primary amputation. If they did this in a circular technique so that you didn't close the flaps, you just left a circular cuff to come down over the end, packed it with lint, and basically you had an open granulating wound that would finally cicatricize down. This reduced the mortality to 20 or 25%. So you're saving a lot of lives, but you're sacrificing limbs to do it. And you can see in this illustration, they've got a fairly severe looking wound in the calf and they're getting ready to do a thigh amputation. Uh, prosthetic limbs came into their own during the war. Uh, the hangar company, which is still located here in Richmond, provided most of the prosthetic limbs for the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. And you can easily see him administering the chloroform. By the way, when you got to this hospital, you were given more stimulant more opiates, and then you were given chloroform too, you were indeed rendered insensible to pain. But even Jackson, the famous Stonewall Jackson, who was suffered the amputation of his left arm under the influence of chloroform, said later that he remembered the sound of the saw going through the bone and thought it was the sweetest music he ever heard. His taste in music must be questioned. But he also declared chloroform an infinite blessing, and indeed it was. Now, up to this point, the soldier's been well cared for. He's been given plenty of things for his comfort. 
He's had an operation that was performed fairly quickly within a few minutes, and his chance of survival has been taken from, from 5% all the way up to 85% or 75%. And he's done it relatively comfortably. But the transition from the field hospital back to the main hospital was an agonizing journey. As you can see in this slide, it was often the supply chain in reverse, the same unsprung wagon that brought the forage and, and supplies forward would be used to take the wounded to the rear. There'd be a few sprung wagons and ambulances, but, but a lot of various vehicles were used. Also, once they got to the rail depot, the same boxcars that were used to bring supplies forward, they might spread a little clean straw in the bottom if you were lucky, and the patients would be laid in the floor of the cars and then sometimes the transition between the, the depot and getting back to, say, Richmond took several days. All of this time, you had no additional painkillers. You had no medical attendance. If you were lucky, you got some food and water. Now, once you got to the general hospital, everything was wonderful. But getting there was the problem. They finally learned that regimental hospitals didn't work as efficiently as brigade hospitals and even those didn't work as efficiently as the Confederate units got smaller. So they finally settled on division hospitals as the ideal level for providing medical care. But one of the things the Confederates did, and I'm not gonna belabor this like I tried to do last night, because you're probably not that interested. <laughs> but if you can orient yourself in the upper right-hand corner is Fredericksburg and the Rappahannock River, and then, of course, as you know, the Rapidan is one branch of the Rappahannock. On the left-hand side, in a vertical fashion, is the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. And then across the bottom of the slide is the Virginia Central Railroad. The Army in Northern Virginia wintered in Orange Courthouse. And when Grant crossed the river in the wilderness, Lee marched east to meet him. So you can see the blue lines on the left hand within the box, that's the Battle of the Wilderness. There were aid stations up close to the lines, division hospitals at Locust Grove and Parker's store, probably two core hospitals located at Old Verdeersville and New Verdeersville, which are very close to each other. And then the receiving and forwarding hospital of the Army of Northern Virginia was on the rail line at Orange Courthouse. One old soldier called it Madeersville, which was colorful, <coughs> instead of Birddeersville. As the Federal Army moved to the east, at Spotsylvania, the Corps hospitals and division hospitals were still located. The receiving and, and forwarding hospital were, was initially blocked from being able to, to change its base because of the Federal raid on the Virginia Central. And then it eventually came by rail around to Guinea Station. And most people don't realize it, but the Confederate wounded from Spotsylvania were basically evacuated to the same place as the Confederate wounded from Fredericksburg. Eventually, they all moved down to Richmond after fighting near the North Anna, Old Cold Harbor, et cetera, et cetera. So what's a core hospital, and why is it so innovative? Letterman, in his organization of the federal evacuation system, refined it, rewarded it, 
and added personnel to it till it served the purpose of the Union Army. The Confederates could do none of these things uh, effectively. So they invented a new system which included core hospitals which were actually complete separate hospitals. They had their own doctors, nurses, and we're talking about male nurses, of course, in the field. They had their own commissary and quartermaster and wagons and transportation assets, tentage, et cetera, et cetera. So the advantage of this is that when the army marched off following a serious engagement, the core hospitals could stay behind as long as necessary so that the men could be taken care of before being moved. And then once they were gonna be moved, the receiving and forwarding hospital on the railroad provided a mobile depot. And these are very much like the combat support hospitals and the evac hospitals of the modern army. And as far as I know, the Federals eventually had a depot hospital made up of non-army assets, but they never had formal core hospitals one for the Confederates. <laughs> and of course, the general hospitals. Uh, there were various kinds of hospitals, one of which was uh, existing buildings, uh, tobacco warehouses, tobacco factories, and there is a difference. Tobacco warehouses were simply big rooms where they hung tobacco to cure, uh, much like Libby Prison. Tobacco factories were buildings full of small rooms where they actually changed tobacco and stemmed it and made it into cigars or whatever else they needed to do to manufacture tobacco products. And they made good hospitals also. <clears throat> but all the existing buildings didn't work out as well as the eventual use of the pavilion-style hospitals, which interestingly enough were used in the Army up until after Vietnam, uh, well into the 20th century. This is the famous photograph of Chimborazo, uh, the plateau just east of town where the first pavilion-style hospital was opened 150 years ago this month. I'm fully in belief that it was established there because it was downwind if you think camps smelled bad, hospitals smelled worse. Everybody had diarrhea plus whatever else they had. This gives you the photograph and the perspective from which it was made, but you can see the multiple detached individual frame buildings. There was a knowledge of the efficacy of ventilation. They knew that in a fixed hospital in a building, that each patient should be given about 800 feet, cubic feet of air space. This was sort of a critical juncture which minimized the, I heard something go off, is that, oh, we're getting close to quitting time, I'm sorry. Anyway, one thing the Pavilion Hospital did was provide um, ventilation. It provided safety from fire. If one of the buildings burned down, they didn't all burn down. It was on a plateau that provided good drainage, and they had their own brewery, ice house, everything. And I can only invite you to come out to our exhibit at the Chimborazo Medical Museum. This is another known photograph taken from a slightly different angle. This is one of the hospital doctors, pretty much of a dude. 
you can tell he's even wearing slippers of all things. Contrast that with the earlier picture of the field doctor. This fellow lived in mortal fear of being sent to the field and the field doctor coveted his position. And of course, the last thing I'm gonna mention is the role of women. It's a little bit tricky. There's a couple of things wrong with this picture. That lady's much too pretty. I'm fully of the belief that some of the women were hired just to encourage the men to get back to the front. <laughs> but they certainly didn't want the men falling in love with their nurses, but several did anyway. Second of all, the man's in his clothing. When you checked in a general hospital, you were taken, uh, all your dirty, filthy clothing from the field was taken and checked in with the quartermaster. And then when you got out, if you got out, you might be issued whatever clothing was available, not necessarily your own. But they wouldn't leave them laying around their clothing because they had a habit of breaking out at night and wandering the streets. And nobody, even a Confederate soldier, would do that in a nightgown. <laughs> the role of women, though, is sometimes felt to be their first general nursing effort. And without sounding like Clinton, I'd like to say that that's not quite strictly true. <laughs> women had nursed their families, their slaves, their neighbors for centuries in a basically home-based system of care, women were the nurses. The only difference during the war was the sudden incorporation of women into a strange environment nursing strangers. They did a very good job. Their role included everything from just generally bed sitting to observing to cooking and washing and occasionally they were trained to administer medications. One of the true advances during the war was the shift of American medical care from a home-based system to a hospital-based system. And this allowed many of the advances of the 20th century to be facilitated. But it's ironic that we're now going back to a home-based system, or at least trying to. And I'm gonna stop there since I should have stopped 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and I apologize. I was just going to get him to announce that I'd left the building. <laughs> of the general hospitals that were here in Richmond, how many were there and how many of those facilities still stand today as far as being able to look at the buildings? The National Park Service people, i tell you who can tell you that, that is Mike Gorman. He has that site on the web called Civil War Richmond. But there were at least 24 general hospitals, or 25 or more. And then there were some private hospitals, and then there were the three big pavilion hospitals, which was Chimborazo, Winder, which is out near Hollywood Cemetery, and also uh, Stewart Hospital, which was near uh, Monroe Park. Uh, all of those places had been something prior to being hospitals, either militia gathering points, or 
fair, fair places where, where they held state fairs and such. There are a, n a number of the warehouse hospitals like hospital number 12 at the Grant factory and the Alabama hospital in the Shaco district. Uh, you just have to know where, but most of them are marked with a plaque. And uh, some of them have been compartmentalized on the ground floor, but if you go up to the second or third floor, they still look just like they did during the war and smell much the same. Well, not, <laughs> not in a bad sense, they smell like tobacco. Did the doctors on both sides treat anybody on both sides, or did they keep the resources just for their own soldiers? Yes, I'm sure you've heard the old saw, uh, truth is the first uh, casualty of war. Both sides accused each other of not treating the wounded prisoners properly, but to the best of my knowledge, it never really happened. They would prioritize and take care of their own people first, which is only natural. But eventually, all soldiers, both sides, would be treated equally. Many times, the doctors worked together, as you saw in the slide at the barn. That was Confederate and Southern surgeons working side by side. Many times, they'd been to the same schools and knew each other from that experience. Perhaps you could comment on the uh, uh, male nurses or medics who were accompanied to regimental surgeons in the field. Yes, of course the regimental surgeon couldn't do, couldn't do it all. The regimental surgeon was simply the full surgeon for each regiment, and he was accompanied by an assistant surgeon who was the equivalent of a captain, and the full surgeon was equivalent of a major. At the time of a battle, the assistant surgeon and two men from each company, so that would be 20 enlisted men, would go out onto the battlefield. <clears throat> he had one man that carried a medical knapsack full of splints and bandages, and he was uh, called the knapsack toter, which is a clever name. But the other 20 men would either assist at the aid station or be parts of the litter teams. Now, of course, you've all heard that the bands were used as litter teams, and this was true in a few incidences. First of all, most regiments didn't have a band, so that sort of eliminated that point. There is a good story about the North Carolina band at Gettysburg where they would bring casualties back during lulls and then get their instruments and play patriotic airs at the hospital. And General Manigo, a South Carolina surgeon, once famously said, I don't like to use my band members as litter bearers because I can get toters easier than tutors. <laughs> and with that note. <laughs> Thank you.